Vyasa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed noble and fully self-enlightened one. Uh, because uh, yesterday I missed out the important connection of consciousness, <laughs> dependent origination, thank you to Maggie, I was pulled short. Uh, I just want to just go over that very quickly, just so that you're clear, and start from a different point. Any given conscious moment arises at the same time as the body and mind complex. So with the body, with its sensations and sense bases, the mind with its feelings and perceptions, there arises consciousness. And the one feeds off the other. The one is dependent on the other. It's codependency. When the body arises like that, it has the six senses awake. Uh, Possibility. Possibility of contact. And that's the next bit, the contact. All that arises, as it were, together in some form of codependency. Running underneath that, right, are your attitudes, your conditionings, which have been based on a wrong understanding, which is this delusion. Right, it's running underneath. And in, uh, when we are aware of our motivations and our conditionings, we can see how these underlying delusions and uh, unwholesome conditionings are manifesting. And they manifest by way of clinging, desire, um, holding on to things, and all the aversion stuff and the hatred and the fear, etc., etc. That's it. Done it. I was going to give a talk on karma, but I, I just feel it's perhaps a bit more necessary to move into daily life and virtue. But I would like to say just very quickly where karma fits in. There are five laws that the Buddha points to. The first one, Uttunayama, is what is called the Lord of Heat because um, um, that was considered to be the, the basic energy of the universe, which is close to our modern idea, actually. Uh, but that's all your physical universe, including chemistry and all the rest of it. The next law is the Bijanayama, which is the Lord of Genetics, and it includes plants, etc., etc., The next law is Chittanayama, which is the law of psychology, which includes or or launches out into the way psychologies relate to each other, which we call society. The fourth one is karma. And the fifth one are the spiritual laws, which uh, basically are the Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Path. Hmm? When something happens to you, uh, traditionally... 
uh, it's because you've done something terrible in the past. I once asked a Sri Lankan man, Sri Lankan Buddhist, um, why, did, uh, why did he think Jesus had to suffer the crucifixion? And he thought for a minute and he said, he must have done something terrible in his past life. <laughs> and you know, like, I just thought it was just it was so funny. And that's the way you can begin to think about karma in this sort of very mechanical way, as though if you're doing something compassionate, you may not suffer for it, you know. So there's a, a big misunderstanding around karma. Of course, if you do something, it will go into the world, but you don't know what's going to come back. I always like to give the example of a Totnes charity which collected clothes to send to Africa to help this particular community. Sending the clothes ruined the tailor trade and depressed the local economy. So they had to come back with all their clothes. (laughs) You see, no matter how good-willed you are, you don't know what an action is going to do when you put it into the world, and you don't know how it's going to come back to you. So that's why, for instance, Gandhi ends up getting shot, uh, but Martin Luther King, uh, Martin Luther King gets, gets shot, but Nelson Mandela doesn't. So you don't know what you're going to do. In the same way, people who commit awful murders... Uh, Stalin died, well, I don't know where he died peacefully, but he died in bed. (laughs) So you see, you don't know. But if you see your karma as within your psyche, right, then that's really where your karma is because your suffering doesn't exist out there. Your suffering exists in here. And this is where you get your comeuppance. See, So the karmic law is actually the law of dependent origination insofar as it relates to our personal liberation from suffering. See, And the statement is, nobody can cause you psychological pain. Nobody. We think they do, but when you grasp that, at first it may be disappointing because now you can't blame anybody. I mean, that's a big, big downer. But when you come to realize that actually all my suffering is caused because of my internal attitude to what is happening to me, then, of course, I realize I can undo it. And that's why even in a world of suffering beings, Buddhas can arise fully purified without suffering and liberated. Otherwise... If, there, if our suffering were in any, even a nano, dependent on somebody else, I'd have to get rid of you, full stop. <laughs> See? So uh, when we, whenever you hear about karma, uh, traditionally or whatever, you'll always, it'll always be quite mechanical. So, for instance, the tsunami, you see? So, I mean... What does that mean, that all those people must have drowned dogs in their past life or something? I mean, in fact, I say that because there's this lovely story in the, uh, which supplements one of the verses of the Dhammapada, which is like a collection of verses, which is almost akin to a sort of little reading book that um, Theravada has. 
And it would seem that a ship is making its way across the ocean and inexplicably, even though the winds are strong, it stops. So the captain, slightly worried, asks, of course, a group of monks who happen to be on board and say, you know, what's, what's, what's happened here? So they all sat together and meditated deeply and they said to him rather sadly that it was his wife. <laughs> In a past life, she drowned all these dogs. And the only way this ship was going to move was to chuck her overboard. (laughs) Which he duly did. (laughs) And the ship sailed on. And I thought, that's a very clever way of getting rid of your wife. (laughs) Can't be had for murder, can you? So when you you read these little stories and and you hear, so we say... uh, um, what would you say, traditional Buddhists talk in a very mechanical way about karma, uh, then that's not really, <clears throat> you know, the, uh, where the Buddha's at. But remember, that does not uh, deny the fact that when you do something, uh, you know, something comes of it. Yeah? Something comes of it. And when you do something wholesome, there will be some wholesome input into the world. But don't be surprised that you create enemies because of your, of your wholesome intention, that's all. So, uh, just leaving it at that, I uh, just want to go on to the virtues, what we have to develop, you see, and that takes us a bit more into, into daily life. And the pattern I'd like to use is what's known as the parami. Uh, translated as perfections, but actually parami means the other shore, what leads you to the other shore. And it's one of the images that the Buddha uses for Nibbana. So we're on the way to the other shore, and uh, ten of these uh, qualities are listed. Actually, it's a later list uh, extracted from his talks rather than him making any particular rigid list, but at least it gives us something to work on. Um, They won't surprise you. Uh, Morality, that's, uh, that's on the list, so remember that uh, morality is, you can say, something is immoral if it has a harmful intention. So it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's arising from aversion or from greed. If it has a harmful intention, uh, an unwholesome intention towards ourselves or towards others, then obviously it's going to do damage. So our job is to see the positive side of these rules. So we take the tomorrow, um, if you wish, you can take with me the five training rules. So the first one is not to harm living beings. But, of course, the positive side of that is to protect them. Not to take what is not freely given. The positive side is generosity. See, Not to abuse our sexual uh, um, powers. The positive side, of course, is to, uh, is to develop loving relationships. See? Not to tell lies, well, obviously to be truthful, that actually comes up here as something separate. And uh, not to take drugs or drinks or to cloud the mind is, of course, you know, to try and maintain our mindfulness as best we can. So uh, that's something that needs to be developed and it's part of the path. And one of the consequences of vipassana is to dig down to see the unknown uh, forces, conditionings within us, which, in a, in a sense, push us to do things which we, we know are wrong, but we can't stop it. You know, like, 
the extra piece of toast and all that. You, know, you, can't, <laughs> you can't stop you. You've just got to go for it, you know. Especially since you haven't... Ha- oh, you, well, you will be able... <laughs> you'll be able to tomorrow, because tomorrow you're, in the afternoon you're liberated and, and you can have soup. <laughs> and that's, that's when you discover what Nibbana is. <laughs> it all happens. <laughs> and now the second one's rather interesting, and I'd like to connect some of these... Um, Although it says not gratitude here, it's sort of um, uh, presumed there are three things. Uh, three things here. There's 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 gratitude, um, giving, uh, um, generosity, and renunciation. And these three things sort of connect together very beautifully. Um, a gratitude, obviously, is that feeling you get when somebody's helped you. And uh, that thankfulness that comes into your heart uh, wants to express itself by giving something back, you see. Um, In terms of a pure gift, you can't give something back, you know, like the Dharma or all the teachers here uh, offer teachings in that spirit. So it's not as though you can give something back for that, although, um, uh, you know, um, we're asked to support their livelihood. So when somebody gives you a gift from, from the heart, then there comes this sense of gratitude for it. And a gift can be anything, can't it? It can be looking back to your teachers, people who've helped you at school and places like that. Um, during your life, people you've met who've just helped you and then disappeared. You know. So gratitude, when you contemplate gratitude... Uh, and gratitude to your society, you know, not taking things for granted, then that spirit of generosity rises quite naturally. Uh, Generosity itself, um, it's not that, uh, you know, we have social, social contracts, you might say, which aren't evil or bad, Uh, they're just not pure generous. So, for instance... When it's somebody's birthday, you give them a present. Because, you know, if you don't, they'll be very upset. <laughs> At Christmas, you give them a bottle of wine, they give you a piece of cheese. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like that's what you do. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's not pure generosity. It's a, it's a sort of, um, it's what, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a social contract in which you recognise each other's relationship. And that's beautiful. That's not, nothing wrong with that at all. But uh, true generosity, pure generosity, of course, is, is the giving of something without any hope of return. And that's, that's your pure uh, generosity. Now, it's when we're practicing pure generosity that we are beginning to um, receive the spiritual benefits. Because when you give of your time, it's time you could have spent on yourself on what you want to do. In which case, there's a denial of that self, and there's your renunciation. When you give of your wealth to something, it's something you could have you know, spent on yourself and enjoyed yourself quite legitimately, quite morally, it's not a problem. But you've given it, and in so doing, you've let go of, you've renounced something. And renunciation on the path is the undermining of, of the self in the way that it expresses itself of a, you know, by way of acquisitiveness, greed, aversion, and all that sort of stuff. So that renunciation in, in, uh, in Buddhist practice is to see where the attachment is. 
Now, it's not the same as self-mortification, because often in ascetic practices, uh, you're practicing that to control something. Um, you might, for instance, uh, you know, if you think of these um, uh, in the Buddha's own practice, so in self-mortification, he stopped eating on the presumption that eating uh, caused greed. So it's, you know, or, or it can be a sort of punishment, a self-punishment. Uh, it can be all sorts of reasons, but it's not renunciation as such in the Buddhist understanding. It's not something that the Buddha... Uh, you know, thought was was useful. In fact, he said it was unprofitable and, and just suffering anyway. So there wasn't any point in doing it. So renunciation is um, giving up something which we hold uh, dear for the benefit of somebody else. So that's what you're doing. And that giving is the, is the generosity. Now, um, when we do that, of course, we do come across... Um, subtle problems that we have to sort of work with. So, for instance, uh, you might, in, the f- in, in, in a sort of very conscious way, because, say, somebody's ill, this is, a, this is always a good uh, example, when somebody's ill, you think, oh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll make some soup or something for them, you see. So you've got your way to make this soup, and it's done with the fullness and generosity of heart. It is your friend, etc., etc. And you turn up with this flask of soup, you see, and your friend says, well, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm too ill for that. And I'm, I'm sorry. You say, well, that's okay. You know, so, and they say, but could you do something for me? Sure, yes, whatever you wish. Could you, could you clean my toilet? <laughs> <laughs> and you think, oh, I'm coming to clean your bloody toilet. <laughs> and it's, it's when somebody asks you to do something and you feel that rejection, you see, then you see the limit of your so-called full-hearted giving, you see. So it's a case of... Uh, giving with giving without condition is difficult for us, and when we see the resistance, when we see the aversion, then that's that's the point to work with. Okay? Now that doesn't mean to say that therefore you don't clean the toilet because you feel averse to it. You know, you you note that, and then you give yourself entirely to it. In the same way, often we may end up caring for somebody, um, and we feel it's an obligation. Uh, especially our parents, you know, poor parents, as they get old, you think, oh, calm down. Okay. Uh, but of course, if you see it as, as something put upon you, then of course it becomes a sort of crucifixion, really. But if you take it on as your personal responsibility, then it becomes a point of growth because it's a, it's a real gift coming from your own heart, you see. You can suffer anything from that point of view. <laughs> so, uh, that giving is, uh, you know, it's, it's often difficult. Like, for instance, uh, at, the end, at the end of this course, the managers will come in and, and, and ask you to make donations, you see. So, I mean, like, how do you, you know, what do you do, you see? So um, it's a constant question because people like to be told, oh, you've got to give £10. Well, that's easy. They say, you either will or you won't. <laughs> but when they say, give what you wish, they won't. so then you're stuck, aren't you, you see? So what will I give, see? So there's this little argument goes on, you see, and uh, hopefully um, you come to a point where you feel you, you're giving, you know, the right amount, uh, considering your own wealth and, and all that. And the thing is, you see, is to put the right intention in your heart. See, now remember the importance of intention in terms of conditioning. 
So as you approach the, uh, the down the box or whatever you see, you say to yourself, I'm giving this for the benefit of this person um, so that they can continue teaching the Dharma. You give yourself a really wholesome, right? And as that floods the mind, as that actually floods your consciousness, that's when you let go, you see, because the action actually confirms or stamps into our conditioning those good intentions. Now, of course, you do that, and then this voice comes up and says, Oh, you could have given some more. You know, you really are not vision. Or, oh, too much, get some back. <laughs> so then you turn on that and you say, Ah, see you, Mara, the evil one. See, you, got, you didn't get me there, you see. So you're on top of that one. So, <laughs> so when, when you wish to be, when you wish to practice this pure generosity, and as I say, there are other times when. Um, it's more of a social contract, which is fine. But when you wish to practice a pure generosity, when it's an obvious, when you want to do that, then all you have to do is put that very clear determination in your mind and uh, do the action when that is uh, within your heart, if you know what I mean. I don't mean as a big feeling. You don't have to be gushing, you know. <laughs> it's just, but more in the sense of that's what you're thinking of and that's what will be empowered Uh, just to reinforce that, let me just tell you something about our rules. Um, supposing on a negative sense, I, I saw that bowl and I thought, well, that's a really nice bowl, I could do with that. <laughs> and uh, and the, the idea comes, well, if I just take it, they won't miss it. I mean, they can buy another bowl for heaven's sake, you see. And, uh, and I think, oh, that's, that's thieving, you see, that's terrible. So I, I, I put that aside, you see, I don't say... But I, uh, as I keep coming into this room, I keep looking at that bowl, you see. <laughs> I think, oh, I might, go. I might go with the bowl, you see. And I, and I move my hand towards it, and I pull it back, see. Now, in our, in our rules, this is a dukata. This is a, this is a, um, a, a what do you call it, du, dukata? Uh, a harmful action, right? But it's minor. And, uh, and um, normally, uh, we confess every two weeks, to each other, one to each, you see. But you don't, generally speaking, you don't have to be specific. Some group of monks are specific. So I might say, uh, you know, I was really attracted to that bowl and I did move my hand. So, uh. Now, in, in the rules, you see, the other monk says, did you see what you did? I say, yes, I did. I say, will you do it again? I say, no, I won't. That's it. That's the, end of, that's the end of story, you see. Anyway, here I am, you see, and I've come back in the room and I thought, no, I'm thinking of that bowl, you see. And, and, I, and finally I thought, oh, I can't help but he's in, I grab it. And my hand goes on it, but I don't actually move it. I don't actually move it. See? And I pull back and say, oh, no, 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 I mustn't do it, you see. Now, that's a garo. That is a severe uh, breaking of the rule. I actually touch the object that I want, see. So confessing that, it would be the same sort of thing, you see. But eventually, of course, it does take me over. I can't help it. it just, I, I just want that bowl, you see. <laughs> and I finally move it. And I move it a nano of a centimeter, a nano. And I think, no, and I pulled it back. No, that's it. I've done it. I've committed an act. I, that, for one nanosecond, I took that bowl. It's an act of stealing, right? Now, if that bowl were worth uh, something for which the local authority would fine me for, no matter how much, or um, caution me or anything like that, I've lost the robe. I'm no longer a monk. See? That's called a parajika. That's called a defeat. So make sure that ball's here when you come in. <laughs> so that, that sort of gives you an idea, hopefully, of, of 
sort of stages of how intention, of how important intention is, you see, and how it creeps up on you. And how if you don't watch it, suddenly you're doing something which you actually had determined not to do because you didn't realise the little intentions that you were making, little drops of water in the bucket until the whole thing's full, you see. <clears throat> so those three things, um, uh, gratitude, uh, generosity and renunciation, are very much the path of action. And remember, it's work. Even at work, you see, you go to work with the intention of service, it becomes an act of generosity. See? And that path, by the way, is a path to liberation. You don't have to do it. Meditation, the meditation we do, is a, a very skillful practice and all that, but it's not absolutely necessary in order to become liberated. Uh, you could practice generosity and it would lead you all the way there. Generosity of spirit, giving of time in a proper way, giving of, uh, uh, of, uh, of your wealth in a proper way. In other words, that that uh, constant effort to, be, to, to see that connection between yourself and others is the underrooting of the self as some independent entity. See, And we'll come to that a little bit later on when we talk about uh, love. Uh, so we've, we've done that bit. Um, wisdom, we can... We can uh, we, that's what we've been doing all week, wisdom. I mean, we can move on. <laughs> We're all wise enough now. Uh, energy, well, that's, uh, this energy is the, is, the, uh, is the sort of effort that we have to build up to keep going to the practice. So that's what we've also been doing all week. Every time we've felt this, you know, this lethargy and all that sort of stuff, we've lifted the energy. Every time we've felt too restless, we've waited for it to calm down. So it's getting that right energy. Energy is the fuel that you're using in your life. You know, it's the actual, you know, it's, it's the petrol, isn't it? See? And you've got to work on that and, and lift it. Uh, patience, patience and forbearance. The Buddha says this is the, um, the greatest of ascetic practices. So you never mind sitting on fire coals and, and, uh, and sitting in a block of ice. If you really want to know what ascetic practice is, practice patience. And uh, patience is forbearance. It's the willingness to bear. It's the willingness to bear. Um, I mean, the Buddha gives uh, an example of bandits who come along and uh, attack you and saw you from limb to limb. And if at any time you felt angry or irritated, uh, you would be no disciple of his. And now when I said that um, once, uh, somebody said, yeah, but the Buddha had a, a good sense of humor, <laughs> which he did. <laughs> but I, don't, I think he actually meant it. <laughs> so this, this patience is the ability to, uh, to bear with, you know, to, to actually um, not to try and, uh, you know, not to use these wrong energies like anger, and hatred to push something away, but to see everything as uh, an opportunity for growth. That's a lovely way to look at life. So when, when things get hard, you see, when people get up your nose and all that sort of stuff, then you say, you say to yourself, ah, now, this is a wonderful opportunity for growth. <laughs> and in that way, you, you begin to develop this, this patient endurance. 
And that's the other thing. Uh, there's a question here. Some of these uh, we can answer, you know, over the weekend, tomorrow. Sorry. But um, it's, uh, there's one here about... Um, uh, let me see if I can just find it quickly. Well, maybe it was in the in the other section. Just a minute. Yeah, it must be in the other in the, one of the others. <clears throat> but so it's like um, it's being able to hang on in there no matter how difficult the path gets. It's interesting because you do meet people who, without any obvious Dharma instruction or anything, just have that quality within them. Uh, we asked, we employed a man to come and do some double glazing for us. And he's a lovely man, uh, towards retirement age, in his uh, early 60s. or yeah. And uh, he got, we got talking about meditation and all that, and he said to me, you know... During my 40s, I went into these, this terrible, terrible, terrible depression. Um, and he said, well, it was my family that helped me. And, you see, he was of the age, he's been, I think he was, and that's what he said, he said, I took no medicine, I wouldn't take any medicine. And he just bore with it, and he got up every day, and he did his job, and, and he just, and it was his family that supported him through this time. His memory of it is that it was really, really terrible, but when you meet him now, you'll see it's, 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 there's this lovely energy about him, you see. It's lovely energy. And so when things come to us, um, if we get to a point where we feel we can't endure, fine. You know, take, uh, take an aspirin, take, um, take drugs that help you. I mean, it's, that's, that's, not, that's not an immoral thing to do. But often our attitude is, you know, got a pain, oh, quick, give me the aspirin. <laughs> you know, it's like, get out of this pain quickly. But in fact, uh, to be, you know, to, to sort of bear with it and endure with it is a great teaching for us. And the path is long, you know. It's not, it's not as though we can um, uh, really live in any sort of expectation. If we put an expectation on our practice, then it, it really loads it with very false energy. You can't, it's best not to do that. There's a distinction that I try to make between hope and expectation. Um, uh, expectation is hope with a date on it. You know, it's like it's like you've got a problem. You've got to get enlightened by the end of the week. It's going to be painful, isn't it? But hope is a is a deep sort of um, um, it. It arises out of the insight that you, through your practice, see that the end of suffering is possible. See, and once you begin to perceive that, even at an intellectual level, even with that, that you've sort of worked it out intellectually, that it is possible. But even more so through your practice that you actually see what the process is and that its end point is the purification of the heart and perfect happiness, then that's the hope you live in, you see. And that's really, that's really something beautiful in the heart and helps and carries you through uh, really desperate times. Yeah, that's, and that's patience. Patient endurance, definitely needed. 
truthfulness, I think that's pretty straightforward, you know, just to be honest, open about things. Uh, but it's, um, it's good to point out here about speech. It's, it's just a something aside, because uh, the hardest of all um, moral or ethical rules is really speech, because we're always talking, you know, and it's always slipping a bit of slander or <laughs> poking somebody or uh, sloppy speech and gossip, you know. How many, you know, like the continual, never-ending chat about weather. And it's all, it's all that sort of stuff. And the Buddha points out to uh, three things, which I, I think are rather nice guidelines. Um, always to make it kindly speech. So it's gentle, so your attitude, no matter even if... If somebody's upset you, you wait until that passes. And then when and if you want to talk about it, uh, it's always in a kindly manner. Um, honest, appropriate. Yeah, that's pretty straightforward, to be honest, appropriate. We, we would call it assertive. Um, assertive gives it a sort of a bit of a pushy energy. We try to, uh, you know, in these books that you read, they try to make a distinction between aggressive and assertive. Uh, an assertive there often gives the person some sort of permission to be quite hard, but assertive just means to say what you want to say, you know, and that's your honesty. And the tricky one, I always think that's a tricky one, is at the right time. <laughs> that's the tricky one. And sometimes you have to have patience. You want to say something, you're pretty good, but you know it's not the right time. So you've got to wait sometimes and, and just hang on in there. And then if those three things come together, uh, usually the difficulty resolves quite quickly. It's just a nice little tried little thing to remember that. Kindly speech, appropriate, and at the right time. Uh, resolution. So now that's something we've been really, you know, I've been pushing all uh, week, the idea of noting your intention. And a strong intention is resolution. I put that little note on the board, you see. Resolute resolution, aditana. Um, it's, um, I mean, that's how you build up your, your courage. That's how you build up your commitment by resolving and then doing your resolution, you see. And only, I mean, I, I used to do this for sitting and whatnot, and it would lead me into these dreadful places and then I, I began to realize uh, that what I was doing was not making a condition which allowed this, these absolute resolutions uh, to, that, that you could let go without a sense of guilt or failure. So the resolution I think I, I said at the beginning of this retreat is to resolve to do something save in exceptional circumstance or emergency. <laughs> I mean, you've got to... If you keep going at it headstrong, you just, you just eventually just you know, crack your skull. So it's, it's a case of recognizing that uh, even a resolution, may have, you may have to let go of a resolution in certain circumstances. Uh, but basically that, that resolve to continue the practice. So, for instance, um, at, when you go home, um, uh, profoundly and, and I'm sure eternally inspired by this course, uh, you'll say to yourself, well, I must resolve to do this meditation, you see. And uh, one of the mistakes we make, being, shall we say, inspired, is to say, well, I'll, I'll sit for two hours in the morning, and I'll do a bit in the and then in the evening I'll sit for three. See, and then, you know, come Monday, you, you sit there for one and a half, and you think, ah, I've had enough now. So you go... <laughs> 
And of course, by Wednesday, and by Friday, it's gone because you've set yourself a standard which is just impossible. But if you start with something which is absolutely possible, five minutes, I mean, you can start with five minutes, and you resolve, make an absolute religious commitment that at this particular time in the morning you will sit for five minutes, and at that particular time in the evening you will sit for five minutes, and you keep that, and for, say, something like three to six months, then it becomes a, a habit. See? That's when you've created this strong internal habit. And, of course, uh, you won't be surprised to find that the five minutes begins to stretch, and, you f- and yourself sitting for a quarter of an hour, you know, half an hour, finally, what I would say was about optimum for daily life, about 40 minutes, 40, 45 minutes. And the effect of that, of course, is to cool your day, so you tend to have more energy, and because of your coolness, you tend to, your mind tends to be a bit more attentive, so you tend to be more efficient. So it has all these little added effects to your day, um, which feed back into your time. So now you find you have a bit more time on your hands. And, and this you feed back into the meditation, so it, it feeds itself. Hmm? So this uh, resolution is important. We have to really resolve and keep to our resolution about spiritual practice. Uh, but to do something, to, to resolve something we know we can do. Yeah? If it's only a minute, <laughs> you know, choose a minute. But to know you can do it. And that's how you build up this confidence. And uh, remember, it's these resolutions and uh, fulfilling resolutions which are conditioning us. So that's the positive side. You know, all these, all these beautiful mental states that we have. Loving kindness. Now uh, this branches out. Um, it's interesting because in the original scriptures, it's loving kindness, metta, which the Buddha pushes. Um, loving kindness is uh, it's a medieval. Um, I think it comes from medieval Christian uh, text. Uh, to me, it's a wee bit on the sloppy side. I prefer something just like goodwill, you see. Um, because when you say loving kindness, people think you have to have this gooey sort of feeling about, you know, love, you know. Uh, but it's not necessary at all. Uh, you can be feeling absolutely awful and still have goodwill, right? This goodwill is coming from a different center, not from the, not from the heart center. But of course, if you continue to have this goodwill, the heart does begin to resonate, and you do feel you do feel good about it. Now, metta um, is this basic relationship that we have with other beings, right? It's um, it's your it's the platform of goodwill that you have to all beings. But uh, we can, uh, for our purposes, just you know, in terms of human beings, anyway. Now, if you have this goodwill, this open goodwill, it doesn't have this attachment in its purity. Attachment means that you pre- it's, it's, your goodwill is governed by whether you like somebody or not like them. But goodwill lies above that. Okay? So whether you like them or not, you always say to yourself, well, um, what's necessary to be done, or better still perhaps, if, this, if, if I liked this person, how would I behave towards them? And that creates a sort of platform of your relationship to all beings. Huh? That's your goodwill. Attachment is the, um, the uh, subtle enemy. I mean, the obvious enemy is hatred. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. And uh, you might think, well, does that, you know, 
how can I not be attached? How can I not be attached to, say, my partner or my, my spouse or my children? How can I not be attached, you know? Well, you, can, you can't. So long as the self, there's going to be attachment. That's not a problem, you see. The, the problem is that, is that if you confuse love with attachment. So how do you know when the attachment is coming up? How do you know when, how does attachment manifest, you see? Well, it manifests when you get irritated with people, <laughs> when they're not doing what you want them to do. It manifests when, when you've got this big idea for somebody, you know, uh, like a parent might have for their children, and they're not fulfilling it, and you feel like strangling them. <laughs> and it's like, it's like, you will do this, you see. Now, of course, it's a, it's a really sort of subtle point, and, um, uh, you know, you have to be careful you don't get yourself into sort of, sort of peculiar situations. Obviously, um, you do your best, you see, and you're coming from the best of your heart. But these little telltale things like irritation or demanding, controlling, they're all, they're showing you that perhaps a little attachment has come in there, you see. Um, see, I remember my nephew, I might have mentioned this during the week, he was complaining that um, his parents had made him eat very fast because he was a very, very, very slow eater. And when he was a kiddie, seven, eight, nine, they're having a party, everybody's finished and playing games, and he's still on his soup, you know. So, <laughs> so they forced him to eat, you see, and he's got this thing in his head about, they forced me to eat, you know, my parents, you know. All that stuff. Uh, and, and I pointed out to him, well, I said, you know, part of your parents' duty is to uh, train you in social habits. You know, your, your friends are not going to like you in a restaurant <laughs> if, if you're going to be there at 12 o'clock still slurping your curry. You know, and they want to get out for their beers. <laughs> Heaven forbid, of course. <laughs> so it's like, you know, even like we have these memories of childhood being murdered by parents, but actually they were just trying to do their best, for heaven's sake. So uh, attachment is a subtle thing. It, it works, but uh, if you work from your intention, you see, if you work from your intention, then at least, you know, we're moving off some, uh, some wholesome base, that's all. Now, you can see, can't you, if your relationship to all beings is this goodwill, the next two illimitables arise naturally. These are called illimitables because their development is indefinite. You can carry on developing your love indefinitely. There's, there's no end to it. It's like numbers. It's, you know, no matter how big your number is, you can always add one, can't you? Uh, I remember there was uh, a little kiddie... I remember somebody telling me, a little kid, he said, is 5,003,221 the biggest number in the universe? And uh, his father said, well, and one. And he said, oh, I was close, wasn't I? <laughs> <laughs> it's a great little joke, isn't it? So, <laughs> so the, the extent to which we can develop um, these things is illimitable. That's, what the, that's why they're called the illimitables. Uh, they're also called the Brahma Viharas, the dwelling place of the gods. So Brahma in the Buddhist time, of course, is the highest being. And to, um, to develop these states is to be living in the Brahma world. You're in, that's what you are. When you're in a state of perfect love, you're a Brahma. That's what a Brahma is, you see. So now you can see, can't you, if you've got this base and your friend falls ill, compassion arises naturally. You don't have to work at it. And um, again, there's always these little um, enemies, these uh, 
these subtle enemies of compassion. And that's when you start, start being the do-gooder. And uh, the do-gooder is the sort of person who does you the good they want to do you. <laughs> because it makes them feel good. <laughs> and once you start doing that, you can expect a lot of hate. <laughs> So you have to be really careful. So remember, when you do good, you feel good, fine. But if you start doing good in order to feel good, then you're corrupting. You're corrupting the whole thing. And you're not putting the other person first. That's the point. So compassion, you have to be careful of that. And the obvious enemy, of course, is cruelty. And the Buddhist teaching, when he's talking about my teaching is about suffering and the end of suffering, the, the worst hell realm, the Avicii hell, is reserved for those who are cruel. So, heaven say, don't be cruel. So, <laughs> so, you can see compassion arises naturally from that basis of goodwill. In the same way, when a friend has good fortune or whatever, joy, you're happy for them. It arises naturally. You don't have to work at it. See? And, uh, <clears throat> you know, even if they win the lottery, you know, you're happy for them. And you don't want a penny. And you're upset because they haven't bought you anything. See? And, of course, the subtle enemy there is envy. Envy, you see. So sympathetic joy, rejoicing in other people's success and joyfulness undermines our envy. And envy, uh, I always like to make a distinction. It's just mine. I don't think it's a dictionary thing. Envy and jealousy, they're very close. Envy is perhaps a sort of just wanting what the other person wants. And jealousy is hating them for it as well. <laughs> so it's a, it's a funny, because you might say in ordinary language, you might say, oh, I do envy you. And that's sort of acceptable. But if you said, I'm jealous of you, it's, oh, you gotta, see, so it's, there is something comes in with this word jealousy. And it's one of those things that, remember, we don't like to see about ourselves, because in seeing it, we're accepting that we are, in fact, inferior you wouldn't be jealous if you weren't, didn't feel inferior, you see, in some way. So in your meditation, when you come across that, you know, you, it's, it's one of these things that we don't even know is there often. Other people see it, but we don't, because it's not something we've turned round upon and, and actually seen within ourselves. So that's, uh, those are those um, four, uh, three illimitables. And the final one is this equanimity. So now equanimity is really the highest of all virtues. It's the basis of all virtues. Without equanimity, everything, everything gets um, lopsided. And um, it's, it's the basis of that openness. See, this is it, you see. That's why I've been stressing this business of openness. Openness means that you're ready to receive what people are giving you. You're not... You're not a filtering out from a position, you see. And that puts you in very direct contact with people. And it's in that direct contact with people that the response comes from the heart of love, compassion and joy, whatever's needed. If there's any filtering, then, you're all, then it'll, it'll corrupt the response, you see. So take, for instance, um, we, find being, we find being with people uh, who are suffering, sometimes we find it difficult because it touches something in us. You know, it brings out something in us. It's perhaps some past experience we have or something in us that, that we're not looking at. So 
uh, instead of feeling compassionate, um, you might feel this aversion towards somebody who's, who's moaning and, and groaning about their illness. And what's, what's happening is there is you're filtering out, you see. You're not, you're not being equanimous with it. You're not opening up to their suffering. And, of course, the opposite can happen too, that in not, not being able to receive their suffering in an open way, feeling the guilt of it, we then go into this great pity thing, you know. Oh, I, you know, I, I know what you feel. You know, well, how the hell does anybody know what I feel? I mean, that's a, it really is painful when somebody says that to you. And it's a sort of, it's a sort of an overlay of, of pity and, you know, and that's, and that's just a defense mechanism, you see. So equanimity is probably the hardest of all virtues to, uh, to develop, you see. But we can do it through this right attitude and it's this business of always coming from a position of don't know, not sure, and uh, ready to receive, ready to receive, you see. So those, in a sense, cover what we call the parami. And I'd like to just finish by reading this lovely little thing, uh, this um, statement, which comes at the end of a, of a, of a commentary on it. Um, it's actually in the Visuddhimagga. I don't know. The Visuddhimagga was a uh, medieval text written by uh, a monk called Buddha Gosa. And it's, uh, it's a big wadge of a thing. And it's, it's, one of the, it's one of the greatest spiritual manuals of the world. It, it starts off with the Buddha's teaching. It gives you all the exercises that you need. Uh, you wouldn't want to read it from cover to cover. It's the driest piece of work you'll ever come across. <laughs> In fact, it's best as a doorstop, but <laughs> but actually, it's it's uh, it's, a, it's that is Theravada Buddhism when you're holding that book. It's it's quite a beautiful, a wonderful work. Anyway, this is how he he finishes it. As the great beings, so these are the bodhisattvas, the enlightened ones, are concerned about the welfare of living beings, not tolerating the suffering of beings. Wishing long duration to the higher states of happiness of beings and being impartial and just to all beings, therefore they give to all beings so that they may be happy without investigating whether they are worthy or not. By avoiding to do them any harm, they observe their morality. And in order to bring morality to perfection, they train themselves in renunciation. In order to understand clearly what is beneficial and injurious to beings, they purify their wisdom. And for the sake of the welfare and happiness of others, they constantly exert their energy. Though having become heroes through utmost energy, they are nevertheless full of forbearance, patience towards the manifold failings of beings. And once they have promised to give or do something, they do not break their promise. With unshakable resolution, they work for the weal and welfare of beings. And with unshakable kindness, they are helpful to all. And by reason of their equanimity, they do not expect anything in return. I can only hope these words and mine own have been of some benefit. May you be liberated from all suffering and become perfectly purified beings for the welfare of all. Sooner rather than later.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.